Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, our fortnightly interview series all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore, the editor of Gentleman's Journal, and I'm joined today by Charlie Bigham. Charlie is the founder, of course, of the gourmet food brand that bears his name and the saviour of many a weekday dinner time. Known for his wholesome takes on British classics, Charlie's eponymous company, which celebrates its quarter century this year, sells 80,000 meals every single week and will likely hit £100 million in sales this year alone. But for Charlie, you sense that the finances are much less important than the food. And in a fascinating episode, the founder tells us how a night on the Iran-Pakistan border provided his lightbulb moment how the financial crisis of 2007 nearly scuppered the business entirely, why he resents his food being called posh, and what happened when a noted food critic tasted his lasagna. Enjoy! But before we begin, I'd love to tell you about The Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get two bumper issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door, full of all those invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurship, style, politics and culture that you'd expect, as well as exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels. Not to mention some lovely invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, our podcast listeners, which is you... Now get 20% off a Clubhouse annual membership, meaning you'll get the full Gentleman's Journal experience for just under £48 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's P-O-D-20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Right, on with the podcast. Thank you so much, Charlie, for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Very nice to be with you, Joe. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, no, quite all right. Um, I I noticed that Charlie Biggums is now 25 years old this year, a quarter of a century. How does that make you feel? Coming up. We've got a few months. A few months. Okay. But we are in the, the centenary year, so to speak. Not quite, but you know what I mean. Yeah. The anniversary year. How does that make you feel? Well, obviously, it makes me feel a bit old. Right. You know? <laughs> because 25 years is quite a long time to do anything. Yeah. I mean, what's really nice is that 25 years in, you know, we're still in the foothills. There's lots to do. There's lots to be interested in. There's lots more great food to make. There's lots more people to reach who've never tasted our food. So hopefully, you know, chatting to you today, there are going to be a few people who listen to this who've never tasted our food, never heard of us. And I think, oh, I'll give that a go. Absolutely. Well, I have happily been tasting your food for many years. And in fact, there was a period of my life when I was particularly busy with work, when it was pretty much my go-to three or four times a week at Charlie Bigham's, especially the chicken tikka masala. So you've put a lot of calories and happiness into me at least. Well, you're looking, you're looking exceptionally well on it. Okay, that's very, very kind. Uh, you know, this is from the waist up, this podcast. But it is, you know, of course, very healthy food as it is. But I always wondered, Charlie, who the Charlie Bigham behind Charlie Bigham's was. Does it does it feel odd to have your name above the shop and and you be the kind of face of something like this? It's a bit odd. Um, mm. and, and, you know, but I am, I am sort of, you know, I'm quite used to it, I guess, now. Right. And there are some peculiarities that come with, with it. But yeah. there are some nice things as well. I mean, I think one of the nice things is is I can 
play the Trump card every now and again if I have to. And I can just say, do you know, this has got my name on it. And it's not good enough or I don't like it. And, and that's, you know, in some, if things get sticky, which they seldom do, because I've got a lovely team and we all work very, in a very nice collaborative way together. But should things get sticky, I, I, it's nice having that trump card up my sleeve I can pull out and play and nobody can argue with too much. I can imagine it's the ultimate card. Do, do people ever wonder, though, that maybe Charlie Bigham is a, is a confection, a fake character who was made up to make them more homely? Has that ever been levelled at you? Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's one of the strange things. I think we've all been sort of told to be cynics. Yeah. So we are automatically cynical. And so yeah. if we hear of someone, if there's a name, we just think, oh, well, that must be somebody made up. And it's quite odd sometimes. We have a sort of customer phone line that rings. And I actually, I don't pick it up very much now because I don't really pick up the phone anymore. Phones are kind of weird. And then I haven't got a phone on my desk anymore. But when I had a phone on my desk, I used to really enjoy picking it up. And then you'd have these strange existential conversations sometimes and i'd say hi it's charlie and they'd say do you exist and i'm like well actually yes i do but it was a kind of it was quite yeah. an interesting way to start a monday morning to be asked <laughs> if you even existed yeah absolutely when when you dig down into it do any of us exist exactly exactly you can get a bit profound and that that can be distracting when you're trying to make sure that your chicken tikka masala is tasting perfect, you don't want to go off down, you know, tunnels, questioning your very existence. Well, let's go back to the early days of your existence then. And were you entrepreneurial growing up as, as a young kid? Or were you always into food, for example? I think I started cooking when I was about 15, 14, 15. Okay. So I, you know, there's a, just a wonderful alchemy in cooking. You can take a bunch of ingredients whatever they are and and turn them into something more than the some of the parts yeah and, and the magic of you know heat applied to things and to me it's still it's still magic it's still magic that you can take an onion and depending on how you cut it up and how you cook it you know what temperature you cook it in and what pan it's in and what else you put in the pan with it you can make that onion taste of you know six different things yeah it's wonderful and so I think that that appealed to me early on. And so I started cooking and the entrepreneurial bit, I think it's quite easy to, you look back and, so, you know, because people ask you this question, were you entrepreneurial? And then you kind of look back and you say, oh, well, maybe I was actually because I used to sell stuff when I was young. Right. You know, whatever it was, I'd, I'd, I'd do things which I'd find a way to make a bit of money just because I needed a bit of money. Uh, because my mum and dad were very good, actually. They uh, they hardly gave us any any pocket money. Good discipline, which I've carried on with my children, because I think it encourages encourages you to, to be a bit resourceful. So I sort of had lots of holiday jobs from a young age and had little schemes when I was making money on the side so that I could live life and have fun and go on holiday with my friends and all of that. Were you ever... Um... A nightclub promoter. I have a new pet theory that all decent entrepreneurs used to flog tickets to parties that they put on. I only did that once. Okay, but you still did it. Okay, this is another. I did do it once. Yeah, you're. You're. I mean, it's. It, it feels like a really easy way to make money. I was at Edinburgh University, and there was. I'm just trying to remember. I can't name that now. Remember the name of the of the nightclub it will come back to me it was called something like Cinderella's but it wasn't Cinderella's yeah and me and a friend we worked out that you could go and hire the nightclub for free 
um, as long as you guaranteed that there would be at least 200 people there. So it's basically printing money if you're charging them. This is printing money, and I'm a student, and I haven't got very much of it, and that would be useful. God, (laughs) it was hard work. It was really hard work getting 200 people. But we made it, and we made a little bit of money. But I I, I didn't think that's going to be... I want to do that again. I think there are many better nightclub promoters than me. I was pretty well at it. But I heard that when you were at university, you were the only person in your year who had a dining table in their room or something who used to host a lot which works which fits well i think i was a better i was better at experimental student cooking than i was at, at, at trying to to do nightclub so yes i used to it was a great way to get people around so so yes i did have a i had a quite a big table which i reckon you could squeeze 12 or well as many people as you needed to around it but at least 12 maybe <laughs> 15 or whatever and yeah I used to cook and it was fun and you know people came and everyone needs to eat which is rare in student life sometimes you don't really eat or eat far too much rubbish but after university you were um a management consultant that's right I did that for a bit yeah how did that fit with you did you enjoy that world the slightly more corporate side of things I'm not a very corporate person, which is why I didn't do it for very long. Yeah. But I, I, it was a great first job. I didn't. I, I did an English literature degree at university, so I was qualified to do absolutely nothing at all. And, and, and someone said, oh, there's this thing called the milk round where you can go and get jobs. And, and actually, some of them pay quite well. And I thought, well, that sounds all right. I, I've got to do something. I'll, I'll go and see if I can get a job. And, you know, mistakenly, somebody gave me a job in management consultants. I had no idea what management consultancy really was. It was quite new in those days, relatively. And they offered quite a nice salary. And what was really nice is they said, when would you like to start? And I said, oh, that's that's a nice question. But what's the choice? And they said, well, you can, it was a big global consultancy, which is now called Anderson Consulting. And so they said, well, you can start any month of the year. And I said, well, is it okay if I start in 12 months' time? <laughs> and they said, yeah, that's fine. That's our last wow. that's the last chance. And I said, well, that's fantastic. I can have another year off and go and do fun stuff and eat food all over the world. That might have been a sign that you weren't necessarily too eager to get working, that you deferred it to the last minute. Yes, I think it was, they probably should at that moment have said it, well, that's very, very nice meeting you and, and actually we don't want to employ you. But but luckily they still took me on and and, and I learned lots because they were a very, very good company. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, and I say to, I mean, my kids are now in their sort of early 20s and so just about to embark on their life in the big wide world. And I say to them and their friends, you know, what's a great thing to do is to just go out and work somewhere who for someone who does things really well it doesn't really matter if that's a a theater or a consultancy or a bank or a a charity it doesn't you know but if you can find someone who just is good at their craft Mm. that's quite that's quite good because then you're exposed early on to seeing how someone does things well and I learned loads in my first job which I still apply today actually do you think that's a very important part of of learning is just being around people who are good as opposed to them directly telling you the kind of the soft skills and the osmosis things you pick up, which we don't have this year, obviously. Absolutely. And I think it's a travesty for young people, you know, who are starting their careers. You know, I feel so sorry for people who started their careers in the last couple of years that they've been stuck in their bedroom 
um, you know, are not in the office and in that sort of dynamic environment when you're listening, listening in on conversations and making sure you bump into people and trying to work out how it all, how the whole, this whole weird world of work um, works. Yeah. So I think people have missed out a lot. And I really hope that um, everybody gets back to the office pretty soon. I hope so too. How, you, your main office is in Somerset. That, is that right? Well, we have about half our tea. We, we, have, we have two production kitchens, uh, yeah. one in Northwest London up in Acton. Um, and, and then we have one down in Somerset. And, and, and kind of over the top, you know, above, above each kitchen, we have an office as well. And we are, again, our office team is split pretty much between the two. So we're, look, we're always on the hunt for exceptional people to come and join us in both Somerset and in North Acton. I suspect you in this year as well, you'd have got a lot of people very interested in the idea of a Somerset lifestyle. Well, it's, you know, it's really nice, actually, that, I mean, that's one of the advantages of having been around for all this time and being, I guess, a tiny bit larger as a business is suddenly you start to get people who approach you and say, I'm kind of interested in a career in food and or whatever. And... Could we? Could I come and have a chat with you? And I mean, that's brilliant because any business is entirely reliant on how brilliant the people are who who work within it. So it's lovely when you get talented young people, um, not even just young people, talented people approaching you and saying, "We, I'd love to work with you," uh, and we love to we love to you know hear from people and meet them and chat. And you know, quite often things just fall into place. Well, you kind of fell into the food game, I suppose. You left Anderson Consulting, didn't you? And decided you just you drive across the continents. I had an interim job for a very small consultancy after I left the big consultancy. And that was useful as well, actually. I worked for a little arts management consultancy, very niche. There were only about five people when I joined it. And this was a bunch of people who were found themselves in the right place at the right time because it was when the National Lottery was getting going. And so there was suddenly the arts for the first time ever almost in the UK, or maybe since the Victorian times, there was lots of money sloshing around and someone had to sit in the middle uh, between government and arts organisations. And that was the company I was working for. So I worked for this business, which grew very quickly from five to 30 people. And, you know, it, it was a small business. You know, it was a small business when there were five and it was still a small business when there were 30. But it was very exciting and useful later on for me to sort of be there while that journey was happening and and, and sort of see some growing pains up close. But you felt that there was something else for you out there. It wasn't always going to be consulting. I was never terribly good at yeah. working for anyone else. I'm not very good at being told what to do, which is makes you... A, pretty rubbish employee I think and I think the other thing I, you know about consultancy is it's quite theoretical you're working on well these scenarios the what if kind of lots of that so a lot of your work you're sort of doing models and scenarios and it never actually happens and I found that quite frustrating I thought I want to actually do stuff which is real mm. and it's the lovely thing about food it's real you know we all understand it we eat food you know at least three times a day we can get our heads around what it is and it's just a bunch of fresh ingredients turned into something it's not very complicated it's very immediate it only lasts a few days and it's either a disaster 
and it hasn't been sold and it goes in the bin or hopefully it's a success and someone like you has picked it up off the shelf and mm. taken it home and thought wow that was pretty good so i love the immediacy of food so how did how did the the light bulb moment happen then with charlie biggums well as you said i went off after my consultancy days which were very enjoyable but i kind of knew went forever so me and my girlfriend at the time bought a camper van and drove off to India and said, let's go off and and sort of have a break because we're both doing things which are interesting, but are not forever. And en route, let's decide what we're going to do when we get back in terms of something of our own. And so somewhere on the Pakistan-Iranian border, I was tossing and turning one hot, sweaty night and thought, oh, why don't I set up a food business? You know, slightly inspired by our travels and seeing how delicious food can be just, you know, ingredients prepared and chucked in a hot pan. doesn't have to be very complicated. I thought, well, maybe there's an aspect of that I could do back in the UK, which would work and be better than the convenience food um, that was around at the time. So then you went home and how, what was the protest typing stage? Like, were you quite literally making these meals in your own kitchen? Yeah, the old traditional way of doing things, yeah. Kitchen table at home. What were the first versions? What were the first things you tried out? Our first three dishes, we did a zesty Caribbean lamb, a Cajun chicken with a rather nice mango, red onion and coriander salsa, and then then a salmon dish with a dill, I think it was a dill linguine. It was rather good, actually. They were all very good. Happily, even all today. You were making small batches of these at home and then just carrying them to shops? How does it then become a business? Well, you just, you know, you 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 make stuff and then you yeah. go and knock on doors and persuade people to buy it. This is a very boring, dull question, but I mean, were, wasn't there a kind of health and safety consideration that you'd have to have a commercial kitchen? Weren't there barriers in that way? The barriers are never quite as big as people think they are. Okay. And I think if you set up your own business, you just have to say, I'll just deal with each little hurdle that is put yeah. in my way, you know, one thing at a time. And it's not going to be too, you know, nothing's impossible. So who who were the first customers then who, who bought into the idea? I got in my little van. I had a little van and I drove around selling my wares around London. Um, got quite quickly up to selling to about maybe 20 or 30 independent food yeah. shops and delicatessens in London, including some of the well-known ones, you know, the Harrods, Selfridges, Harvey Nichols, places like that, which are really great and, and still great today, actually, if you're starting a food business. Because if you get in there and it's not too hard if you've got a really good product, because they're very innovative and supportive of small businesses, they want to support small businesses and have the new, the latest stuff and the new ideas. So if you get in there, you sort of get noticed. It gives you an instant credibility because yeah. people from the larger shops, from the supermarkets, for example, are going and visiting those shops and saying, well, let's have a look what's new. So you, right. I think it's quite a nice route. And as I say, I'm pretty sure it still works. It's still a credible route to launch a food business today. What was your sales pattern back then? Are you a decent salesman? I'm a terrible salesman. Okay. <laughs> I'm a terrible salesman. But the great thing about if you have your own business, 
it, it's not you're not even selling you're just you're just sharing your belief and it's quite authentic because it is real yeah you, you have to set up this business it's not just a story you, you, and you've kind of put everything on the line to do it so you're fairly committed and i think the people you talk to see that and know that very quickly and and most people are amazingly brilliant at supporting young people with madcap ideas i'll give them a go how young were you at this point you were late 20s early 30s late 20s yeah yeah and it did it have your name on it even then yes it did to an extent i went off to a friend of a friend who ran a branding agency and they did it did it as a favor for okay. me for 500 quid or something came up with the name they all disappeared and sat on their bean bags for a couple of weeks and then came back and said you know what we should call this business is your name well money well spent they were absolutely right in the end it turns out even though that seems like an easy win <laughs> well luckily i hadn't paid them their normal fee which was probably about 50,000 pounds because they're a very successful business um i'd pay they'd done it as um as a huge favor to me yeah and uh, i i paid them 500 so i couldn't really complain no absolutely did you literally go in and cook this for the buyers at selfridges for example I did that in the early days. I had a, I employed a very lovely uh, chef um, called Spike, and and and, and as a sort of little team of three, uh, Spike and myself and Claire, my wife, would, you know, drive around London, and set up a little cooker, mm. uh, pans, and cook stuff in whichever shop would have us on that day. But we were out almost every every night doing it, and getting people to taste our food and give us instant feedback. And I think the shops quite liked it because it created a little bit of theatre and something, you know, going on, and that was great. But for us, it was brilliant because we got all this gold dust of feedback straight from the consumer's mouth, so to speak. And and that made you change recipes or change what dishes you were putting out there? And that made us change our whole concept. Okay. From what to what? Well, we were, we kicked off with... Are you familiar with the sort of um, what some people call meal kits today? Of course. The likes of Gusto and HelloFresh. So originally that's what we did. But we were a bit ahead of our time doing that 25 years ago. You were. <laughs> so we had a little bag. We started with a little brand carrier bag. It was very beautiful and stylish. And, and inside that bag, there were about 25 different ingredients, which you then, there were some complicated cooking instructions of how you turn that into a delicious dinner. And what we heard from consumers was, you know, the food's lovely, but it's a bit complicated. It's a bit difficult. And actually, we can choose our own vegetables. And actually, we've got a little bit of rice in the cupboard at home. And we've got yeah. the salt and pepper as well. So please don't give us all that. Perhaps you could concentrate. The bit we can't do is the sort of meat fish side and the sauce. Those are the bits that I don't necessarily want to do every night of the week. Mm. So if you could just do those and let us do the rest, that would be great. So that's then what we distilled down to was was just doing those those elements. And actually, in some ways, I kind of think, yeah, I think that insight is still maybe there today with with the whole meal kit world. I mean, there are a lot of them being sold, but I'm I'm not sure how many people buy them very regularly for a very long time, because I think after a bit. It gets a little bit tricky, all those little packets. And 
and you're thinking, what am I paying for? And there's quite, you know, lots of packaging waste and all sorts of trouble, troubling things. Yeah. So, so I think, I think the insight that we got direct from consumers 25 years ago is not necessarily invalid today. So the company started to grow over a number of years and you decided quite consciously not to have any external investment. You kept control of it yourself. Was that very deliberate or was that just something that, that happened? For the first few years, I looked around. I thought it was a bit late. It's quite lonely setting up and running a business. I thought, gosh, it would be really nice to have a mate to do this with. Yeah. Share the pain because there are a few ups and downs always. But um, and I had a chat with a few people over the first few years and it just never quite worked out. You know, probably all the people who came chatted to me just thought I was going to be impossible and difficult. And I don't know. So I decided not to go ahead. And so then after about four or five years, I kind of thought, oh, gosh, well, I'm actually I've been doing this on my own for four or five years. And I've seen I think maybe we're over the first hump. And now I'm not sure if I absolutely need anyone else. So I don't, you know, so I think I'll just hold on to it and try and do it, carry on. I mean, obviously, I've got lots of brilliant people who work in my business. So I'm not on my own, but I didn't have to get into that. The only way I could get people into the business was to give them a large, a significant chunk of equity. I could then say, well, I'll take a punt. I'll just give you, you know, at least a half decent salary and, you know, and, and we'll come up with a bonus scheme. So if it works, it, it works for, for, for everyone. So it was, it was accidental, but I'm quite happy because I think it's allowed, it's allowed us, to stick our necks out a bit and just do what we think is right right and not chase quick profit which is the kind of the vc nightmare is that you get good investment but then suddenly you're chasing your tail the whole time yeah i think the whole vc private equity thing is is absolutely brilliant and right for some people it wasn't really right ever for me Mm. um and it's a bit short term it's a bit short time. It has to be. You know, most most of those guys are on a three to five year cycle, and, and it's quite hard to to really do what you want in that in five years. Yeah, of course. So you just spoke a bit there about hiring people. How 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 did you find staff members to work for you early on, and what kind of people did you like to sign on? Well, I rather liked signing on maverick people. Okay. <laughs> I think I think actually employing maverick individuals in the early days of a business is a really good thing to do. I mean they're loads of fun and interesting, but you you get these there are lots of people out there who are sort of and I'm one of them who's sort of jack of all trades, master of none. And in the early days of a business I think you need that. You need you need generalists rather than specialists because you never know what you're going to be doing and you need you need people who are happy you know if i had someone working in sales they needed to be happy yeah to roll up their sleeves and do the washing up if that's what needed to be done of course that day and i think as as the business has grown you get more specialist and you know you need someone who's a who, people who are real experts are there still those those early mavericks in the business now are they still with you yeah, there's me. There's you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, and of course yeah. we've got a whole, we've got a wonderful, broad range of people who work in the business, um, yeah. from specialists to generalists, and it's a great. We've got a great team. 
of course. W- what makes you think that you're you're a maverick? W- what are the traits that your close team members might tell us about you? <laughs> I guess when I say maverick, I think it's it's just it's always being prepared to look at things from the other angle. You know, it's right. all this stuff you hear about. You know, let's you know zig while others zag, and yeah, you know, this this word I quite. I think it's quite descriptive, contrarian. Right. You, which is just, if someone says everyone's doing this, you think, well, perhaps that means I'd like to do the other. Yeah. You have to be a bit careful because sometimes you can just end up doing things just to be difficult and not necessarily sensible things to do. And you can be very annoying and irritating to work with. So I try, I try to... But I think it's good to to be questioning the whole time. What are some of your great kind of contrarian moments then? What are the things that you've done which have gone against the grain? Well, I think at the core of it is the food we make. Yeah. I mean, I always say to people, people say, oh, how interesting that you make ready meals. And I say, well, actually, we don't make ready meals. They're sold in that section in a supermarket, which might have somewhere around it written ready meals, or someone might describe it as the ready meals section. Mm. But that's not what we make. We just make really nice food. And we start, you know, we have a completely different set of principles about how we make our food. We're not trying to make food to maximize profit or make it last as long as possible or you know, all of that, we're, we're just trying to make it delicious. And those are not the rules in where we are. The rules are make it last a long time and make it cheap. And I'm not interested in those rules. I wasn't interested right from the start of someone telling me you can't put fresh herbs in your food because A, they're too expensive and B, they've got lots of bugs in them and they're going to make people ill. I'm like, well, I eat fresh herbs and they don't make me ill. And... I don't really care that if they're too expensive. If they taste better, then that's what we're about. We're about making our food taste delicious. So I'm not going to compromise on that. I'm not going to follow everyone else's rules. I'll do it my way. Thank you. Of course. And it's clearly worked out. You're, I suppose the big um, barrier for most food startups is supermarkets. The selfridges and the, and the more boutique things are one thing, but the scale of supermarkets makes them fairly brutal places and competitive as well how did you find yourself breaking into those and was it difficult again i think slightly less difficult than people imagine i i I just rang the switchboard um so that you know wasn't too difficult um in some ways it's harder to stay in the supermarket than get into the supermarket okay because it is, it's a brutal competitive world and they've got to do their job and put things on the shelves that consumers pick off the shelves. Yeah. And if, if you're not doing that, then you're not going to hang around there for too long. But yours were clearly selling. What was the kind of feedback like early on? What was the number one thing that, the number one meal that was kind of winning? I think we've had we've had various bestsellers at different times but I think over over time what I came to realize is when I started I was probably on a bit of a mission to change the world and say well a bit kind of going back to doing you know something different to everyone else 
So I was like, well, everyone's eating this, but I'm going to produce something else and show people there's, a, there's other food they've never tried. Yeah. Yeah. Why is everybody eating chicken? They, it'd be more interesting to eat guinea fowl. <laughs> okay, yeah. I quite quickly realised that wasn't a very sensible thing to do. People actually eat chicken because it's familiar and it's good value for money and, and, and they feel comfortable eating yeah. the chicken. And so over time, what we, we, we moved away from sort of esoteric, perhaps slightly more esoteric recipes to food that people like and were already buying. And we just said, our job is to make the very best fish pie you can buy, the very best lasagna, the very best chicken tikka, because you were already predisposed to buy that because yeah. you like it. And that was a much easier sell to people than to say, why don't you try this guinea fowl? How many different variants of things have you had over the years? Are we talking the hundreds of different options? Probably the thousands. Wow. Again, we've changed a little bit how we do that. So we used to do a lot of new recipes and it was all about new and it was loads of fun doing new stuff the whole time. And now what we try and do is we do do new stuff and I'm, it's, it's still loads of fun and exciting and, and it's a very important part of who we are. However, we also spent an equal, probably slightly more time taking our existing recipes and saying, how do we make them 5% better? You had a bit of a bumpy time, that may be an understatement, in the, the financial crisis around 2007. I think that was the only year in which sales went down. Um, yeah, kind of it was a tough year, that. What do you remember from that time? Why do you think it happened, A, and B, how did you navigate it? We were, at the time, growing at a pretty good pace. We were probably growing at 25 30% a year. And when you're, uh, when you're a growing business, you always need to be kind of recruiting ahead of the growth, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. So you're adding lots of cost into the business because you're saying, well, this is the business today, but I know this is coming. So we've got to have, we've got to have these new people. And so we, we were, we were doing that. And then suddenly the financial crisis hit and rather than growing at 30%, we were shrinking at 40%. So we had completely the wrong number of people in mm. the business, just like, bang and it all happened overnight so we had to make some very difficult and very swift decisions to say we've just got the wrong number of people and we've got to sadly ask some people to leave because we've either got to look after some of the people or the whole business is going to go bust we can't look after everyone so it was horrible horrible but i think these things make you stronger and of course, you go through a process and you look and say, gosh, well, everybody's lovely, but perhaps some people are better at their jobs than others. So if you're sort of fair and disciplined about it, you, you, you lose the people who are perhaps a tiny bit less good. Right. And then you end up very quickly, actually. I was, I was amazed. Yeah, you have a brutal week or two while you're doing all of that. Mm. And then everyone who's left is like, okay, well, that few, that's done now. We better we better get on and of course. you're off and away again. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? The, the reasons behind it, because I suppose there are two schools of thought, either that people will stop buying higher end meals from supermarkets or that they'll stop going out to eat so much and might drop down into the higher end meals at supermarkets. So 
it could have gone either way, really, in, in a recession. Or was it just the fact that people just stopped spending money altogether? Well, I, I think one of the things that was fortunate for us is, as you say, if there is an economic upset, yeah, people still have to eat. And yeah. we lose some customers because some people say, gosh, I'm going to save every penny I can because I'm fearful of my job or whatever. But you also gain some customers. Mm. I think in that, that particular time, our problem was actually really to do with our retail partners who were scared that our food, because it was a little bit more expensive than everyone else's, it was like, oh, gosh, we mustn't have anything expensive on the shelf. So we'll just stop ordering it. Mm. And then... Or, you know, and they didn't stop ordering it altogether, but they reduced their orders a lot. But then very quickly, you know, the demand, it was clear that the demand was there. So it's like, oh, we've taken it out of all these shops, but actually in the other shops, people are still buying it. Maybe we, if we put it back into those shops, they, although everyone's got perhaps a tiny bit less money, they'll still buy it. And they did. So we had we had a rocky, I can't remember. I mean, it was it was quite a short period of time. I mean, maybe three months. And then... We made a few changes and launched a few new dishes to sort of for the new world for the new normal. And within six months, we were back in growth. Amazing. So, how much are you, are you a part of that? How much do you, as a as the kind of figurehead, just have to keep calm and carry on and keep smiling? If you'd have lost the plot, for example, and panicked, would it have all gone downhill? I think it's very important when things go wrong. If you if you are in the position of being the business owner or or in charge of a business people are looking at you the whole mm. time trying to trying to gauge how you're feeling and and if you come in with your head in your hands and looking worried and stressed then everybody else thinks oh my god you know this is this is awful we're in there's something whereas if you can come in with your head held high and say come on guys let's rally around and yeah things have changed a bit and but let's, you know, don't worry, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. Then that's very reassuring. And everyone, I think, is happy to happy to go to follow that. Do you have people around you who you turn to for advice in difficult times? Do you have a kind of mentor or a series of advisors or even just friends? I, I've been very lucky down the years. I've had you know various people who've, who've given me great advice. It's a really great thing. I recommend it to everyone to have people. I found it particularly useful to have people who are, are perhaps a little bit, you know, older and more experienced than me who I can turn to and say, yeah, they've, yeah, they, they've probably seen stuff that I haven't seen and they're a bit wiser and, and that's, I find really useful. So yes, I've been like, I've had a number of people over the years and still have people who, who I can just pick up the phone to or, or go and meet for a cup of coffee and chew the cup and say, what do you think? And they usually come up with some good, good advice. And do you find yourself mentoring younger people now, people in different industries or even in the food industry? Uh, yes, I do. I do. I, I get. I I was lucky early on. Lots of people picked up the phone when I rang and asked for advice about how do I start a business and what do you think and da 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 da. And 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 it was invaluable to me. And it's only right that I should try and do the same back. So yeah, I I, I speak to you know one or two people a month who are in the foothills. Of starting up and really happy to share advice. So let, let's talk about the the food startup world or even just the food business because in 25 years food has gone from something I suppose which was as you say something we eat every day or maybe eat on special occasions to a lifestyle to something that has a million 
facets to it and and millions of pounds poured into it all the time um in different sort of ways what what are the kind of trends right now that you find most interesting in the world of food i'm not a big one for food trends okay i'm not a big one for food trends uh, because i think food is quite timeless so i'm interested in just food made properly made well decent ingredients I think we're very I'm very lucky I spend a lot of time, my time in London and um, London is this wonderful culinary melting pot where you can yeah. go and see you know cuisines from all over the world um, there are a few cities better for it you know you can eat in any country in the world you want to in London yeah so that's great and that's I guess a trend in terms of that globalization of food and different cuisines it you know not actually the fusion bit i think very seldom works so it's kind of cuisines being who they are but i think if there's a trend it's more around for me it, it's more around how food is made and it being done properly and i think there's a growing appreciation that how the food that you're eating is made is important and where it comes from how it's sourced all of that and of course the link to food and health is interesting for us all we've all should be interested in that mm. i think there's lots of interesting debates about what is unhealthy food it's not entirely clear there's there's debates amongst the scientists about that is it fat is it salt is it ultra processed that makes food unhealthy my personal belief is the two great evils when it comes to food are ultra processed on the one hand and sugar on the other and they're kind of usually intrinsically linked those two and i think that's why the world is a little bit fatter than it should be and a little less healthy than it should be if we if we eat less sugar and less processed food um that would be a good thing. And what have been the biggest changes in, in those 25 years since you started? What was it like, for example, I don't know, when you were when you were first starting out? Well, I think it's quite interesting when you cast, you, when you sort of wind the clock back. I mean, food wasn't talked about very much. There was hardly any food in the papers, you know, in the, in, in the, and there was hardly any food on telly, unbelievably then. And, and we benefited from that sudden sort of interest in food and newspapers having weekend supplements and food supplements and mm. tv chefs coming along and there being more lots of talk about food on telly that so it raised the whole public consciousness around food the supermarkets responded exceptionally well to that and stopped new ingredients i mean when i started hummus was an exotic ingredient that you hardly found in, in for sale in the uk i mean yeah, there's hummus on every street corner now. It's delicious. I love hummus. But not just hummus, you know, fresh coriander and all these lovely and delicious things that you you couldn't buy easily in the UK. I remember when I was growing up, it was if you went on holiday abroad, as it was known as then, to Europe, you, know, you came back with a can of olive oil because you couldn't really buy olive oil in the UK. It was this weird, exotic Mediterranean thing. So food has moved on in fantastic ways. And we are, we're hugely lucky mm. in the UK that we have 
shops brimming with ingredients from all over the world. An incredible selection of fresh ingredients as well, fresh herbs, fresh veg, you know, year round, not always right that we should have it year round in my view. I think seasonality would be lovely if we had a bit more of that Mm. because some things just don't taste nice out of season. But we are, you know, we're very lucky and, and all of that has happened in the last 25 years. You mentioned luck there. How much of your own success do you do you put down to luck and timing? About ninety percent. Is that right? <laughs> That's probably ungenerous. No, I think everybody, anyone who sets up a business which is even a little bit successful, if mm. they pretend that they weren't lucky, you know, you should be mistrustful. You have to be lucky. You have to be lucky with your timing, and you know when you ring the switchboard that the right person picks up the phone the other end and all of that. You have to be lucky. And, and I've been, touch wood, very lucky. The famous phrase often in startup land is that luck is where preparation meets opportunity. Do you think the, the best thing to do is just prepare as best you can and then hope to perform on the day, I suppose? I think so. And have a positive attitude, you know, just be ready to grab things and take some risks and all of that, you know? Yeah. We spoke before a little bit about the financial crisis. The other crisis of our lifetimes, of course, is the one we're just hopefully <laughs> escaping from now. The pandemic, which to me seemed to have two clear phases. One where everyone was cooking everything from scratch at home. And then the second mm-hmm. one when the last thing anyone wanted to do was to cook from home and, and desperately wanted to put their feet up. How mm-hmm. did um, the pandemic work out for you? And where did you fit into those kind of two steps? Well, it's been a very challenging 18 months or so. And the team, my team, have done an absolutely incredible job. Yeah, we've had to be, you know, both of our kitchens have been open every day. Mm. We haven't closed for a single day. So that's meant people have been coming into work sometimes when they're being scared because I think there have been moments throughout this crisis, maybe we've forgotten something, but when everyone's been a bit frightened, it's, there's been a lot of unknowns. So that's been hard. We've obviously, no surprise, had people who've been ill. Mm. That's been hard. Our, the whole business has been turned upside down about five times at least, you know, with problems with supplies coming in or orders going out or orders going up and down. So it's been really, really difficult. But I've got quite a lot of friends who have businesses in the hospitality sector. Yeah. And I've also got friends who have businesses in the travel sector. And I just feel so sorry for them and so fortunate myself. Again, just lucky. It's not anything other than that, that I have a business in, in the sector that we're in. And we haven't, we, we've, we haven't been overall badly affected. In fact, we've probably had some benefits by from people eating, eating at home a little bit more. So we've had a very strong 18 months of growth. And I see these businesses, people who've been had these wonderful businesses in hospitality and travel, which might have been going for a similar time that our business yeah. has, you know, 20 plus years, doing nothing wrong. And suddenly, bang, overnight, their business decimated. Yeah. And I mean, that would be that would be really, really, really tough. And nothing they can do about it. No, of course. The previous crisis for you in 2007, was that a good kind of dress rehearsal for this one in some ways? I think so. As I say, it was, you know, the, the last crisis was a crisis for us because we had to, our business shrank very rapidly. This crisis that 
I don't think we're entirely out of, by the way. There's all sorts of ramifications that are going to work their way out over the next year or two or more. But for us, this, this has been a crisis, but within the crisis, it's been also the challenge of growth. So it's been quite an odd combination. On a completely different note, Marina O'Loughlin in The Times, the, the formidable food critic, reviewed your lasagna a couple yes. of weeks ago. Is that a daunting prospect to, to have a have a well-known food critic digging into your stuff? Yes, it is rather. <laughs> it is rather. I mean, it's very nice. And and she actually, well, I think she approached the whole thing with quite a negative preconceptions yeah. about us and people like us who make food. Because if you're a foodie, and I completely get it. I mean, I, I don't buy ready meals. I hate ready meals. I don't want to ever eat a ready meal. I don't own a microwave. And so I think we get pigeoned into mm. this box that says we're making cheap convenience food which is to go in a microwave and it's all about compromise and it can't be very nice and that's not what we're doing we're just making delicious food properly for people who want a night off cooking every now and again most of our consumers are cooks so it's lovely when you get someone who sort of comes to you from quite a negative standpoint, and then is pleasantly surprised, which she was. She was actually, you know, she she was honest and and I think finished the article by saying how delicious our food was. So I'm, I'm always very happy if a food <laughs> reaches that conclusion. Did you know about that before or did someone just ring you up and say, you've got to read this, you're in the Times? Yeah, yeah, no, no, you never hear about these things before or seldom, no. you know, you just, just these things pop up and phew. She said something. Yeah. One of the interesting things in her kind of preamble was she gave the impression that that your meals are posh in some way. And there is an aura around it because of the beautiful packaging and because mm. of the kind of scripts and the lovely watercolour illustrations that it is kind of a posh person's food. Is that yeah. something that you um, feel is fair? And how do you feel about that? No, I find it very irritating because it's nonsense. Right. It, it is nonsense. I mean, with respect to anyone who says that, it, it's yeah. kind of, it doesn't stack up. I mean, our food is, you, you know, with some, sometimes people say, oh, your posh, you're quite expensive. And it's like, okay, we're a little bit more than the other stuff, which isn't our food, but we, we're alongside. But that's very often, that's food made in a factory, not a kitchen. It's been made to be as very often as cheap as possible and lost a bit longer and all of that. Um. Our food is, it's very affordable for a very wide cross-section of people. I mean, we're less expensive than buying a Domino's pizza. We're a lot more nutritious, a lot more delicious. But we're less expensive than a Domino's pizza or a a, a delivery takeaway. We stack up very, you know, well against a cup of coffee and a bun from Costa. Our food is, you know, works out at three pounds. 54 pounds a head mm. for the, your main meal in the evening. It's unbelievably good value for money and can be afforded. And, and yeah, most people in the UK are in the fortunate position they can afford that. Um, mm. Of course, I appreciate there are some people who are in, in dire straits financially and, and they can't afford, they can't afford that. But the vast majority of the population can afford it. And it's unbelievable value for money. So no, we're not posh, but we are good. <laughs> you know, good and posh are not the same thing. Absolutely. I quite agree, despite my accent. So before you go, Charlie, I want to I want to read you our kind of list of quick fire questions we ask everyone. 
but I've tailored them, in fact, for the first ever time because it felt very appropriate to you. So you're going to have to be as honest as you can with these. And they're kind of, some of them are either or questions. Okay. Am I allowed to say pass? You can, but it's not in the spirit of it. <laughs> you can, but we'll think you're um, a bit soft. Anyway, they're not too okay. bad. Um, right. First one is fish pie or chicken tikka masala. It depends. How can I possibly answer that? Because they're both delicious. On It depends on your mood. Okay, I'll allow you that. That's very true. And I love them both as well. Italian cuisine or French cuisine? I would choose Italian. Okay. And if you had to zero on a single Italian dish, what would it be, do you think? Well, uh, a dish that sticks in my memory mm. is a wonderful paparodelli pasta with with rabbit that I had up in the mountains above Venice about 20 years ago. And it was just delicious and simple and honest and wonderful. That's, that's what I love about Italian, Italian cooking. It's all about simple, delicious, wonderful ingredients. Red wine or white wine, Charlie? Uh, both. Can I just have both? Of course. Okay, how about we, we put rosé in the mix, which obviously isn't both. I'd like that as well. Can I have okay. all three? You know, but maybe, you know, there's a, there's a time, again, there's a time and a place for all of them. You know. Yeah. It's impossible to put you on the spot like that. Uh, this next one really is putting you on the spot. London or Somerset? You can't possibly answer. Surely. Well, I'm, I, I very, I mean, I love being between the two. I have yeah. a kitchen and a home in both places and I, and they're both the richer for being in the other. Do you know? Does that make sense? Yeah. It just it, it's kind of yeah. It absolutely is. And then different now. What do you cook for a dinner party when you're hosting? Lots of food. Okay. Is the key. Lots yeah. of different dishes, and I probably my natural place I go is to Middle Eastern food in its broadest sense because that that lends itself to having. 10 different dishes on the table do you have a party trick when the when the food's gone what do you do to entertain people no i don't have a party trick <laughs> i don't have a party trick no i can't i can't i can't claim a party trick no neither can i sally we need to work on that need what do you think would be a good party trick have you have you has someone else told you what a good party trick is maybe it's something well like the problem is if people think they've got a party trick it's often you know, it becomes a bit self-centered. It's sometimes when people pull something out the bag without any kind of preamble that you think that is genius. So I don't think you can claim to have a party trick, but you should have something up your sleeve yeah, that is entertaining. I'm going to work on that. I'm going to work on that. What was your favorite food as a child? I think fresh mackerel. Wow. That is not something that most children's palates go to. No, but I, I spend a bit of time on the west coast of Ireland in fact, where I am now, and we're, we, we're right on the sea, and there's usually bountiful mackerel, and there's nothing more delicious than catching a mackerel and eating it straight away. I mean, you might just take a slice off it and eat it sushi style with a dab of wasabi and a little bit of soy sauce. That's very nice. <laughs> or otherwise, just pull in on the beach, make a quick fire, and, and cook them for five minutes over a fire just delicious gorgeous what phrase would you like to banish from the earth forever that'll do 
Do you often hear that? Does that ever get said in the Charlie Bigham offices? Isn't it an awful sort of thought? If you know, I can't be bothered, or that'll do. Compromise, basically. Yeah. And finally, do you have a personal motto, Charlie? Well, do I have? I I probably have several. I'm just trying to think and pluck one. I think probably the one I trot out at work quite a lot is let's look for the how can we rather than why can't we? Brilliant. Charlie, thank you so, so much for joining us. It's been lovely to speak to you and it's lunchtime now and I'm very, It is lunchtime, yeah. (laughs) So we're going, we're we're going break bread, not together, but we're break bread. Um, Lovely to chat to you, Jay, and uh, good luck. Absolutely. Speak to you soon, I hope. Bye. Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.